0: Father, we are full of hope because of the testimony of your people. God, I ask that you would give us strength now to understand that that hope is for every moment of our life, every season that we face. We will struggle. We will seem in darkness and have no idea what you are doing and where you are going but even when we don't see it, you're working. Lord, encourage us, I pray. Use your word by your spirit to encourage us today, we pray. In your name, amen. You may be seated. funny as uh, we were listening to the testimony, especially of Jade and my wife leaned over to me and said, Charles, you don't even have to preach today. That was beautiful. So thank you for all of you who shared your testimony. I just love the simplicity of a childlike faith and yet the deep truth of a man who has walked through life with God, both of them are true and both of them give glory to the Lord Jesus for all that he's done. Amen. So there's less than two weeks till Christmas. If you didn't know that, um, please do not get on your phone and start searching through Amazon. Uh, just, Just wait. But there's two weeks till Christmas. I was privileged today to be in my office this morning. And there's something about the winter when it snows and it's like a straight down snow. There's no wind, it's just soft. It's almost like it wants to be a winter wonderland. Some of you don't like snow. Thank you. Thank you. I know you didn't. That's obvious. Thank you. So the reality is that snow is a reminder to us of the grace of God. I think of that reality where God promises that though your sins are as scarlet, he said, I will wash them whiter than snow. I think of the reality of that being pressed forward in the Bible where the Bible reminds us that we are given white robes, pure robes, clean robes. And I think of snow, of fresh fallen snow. There's something beautiful about it. And it gives us hope as we see that outside, at least it should. Now today I have the privilege of doing a sermon today and next week on Christmas And we're looking today at hope, and next week we'll be looking at peace. And I really want to bridge, if you've been here, you've seen what we've been studying. We've been studying the book of Genesis, and we just finished last week on Genesis chapter 2. And in the new year, at some point, we will start Genesis 3, and we'll be looking at how things are not as wonderful as they were in Genesis 1 and 2. And so briefly, I want to bridge Genesis to Christmas, So walk with me back to Genesis in your mind and re- be reminded that God in his creation evidenced his power and the beauty that God can bring out of chaos and disorder. And he ordered the earth and separated things and then filled it and he filled it with living creatures and with humanity. And God promised and gave to humans rule over the earth. What a beautiful thing that we were given. And so in the end of chapter one, you have God resting with, actually that's chapter two, but at the end of the creation narrative, God rests in his enjoyment and rule over all. And Genesis two gives us a greater picture of the relationship that God made between man and woman and also the responsibility of man to rule in the location of the garden of Eden. And we saw that some of the things that are written there are setting up a story that will be developed through the rest of the Bible and ultimately lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, man's rebellion brought sin and death into the world. And it wasn't just humanity that was cursed, it was actually all of creation. The world itself was cursed and given over to decay. But God promised To restore humanity and to restore the world through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so the rest of the Old Testament especially builds this anticipation of God saving his people. And you see hints of it in actions and stories like in Exodus when God saves his people out of Egypt and brings them to himself in the wilderness. But then things go back to the way they were. And we have other hints where there's David and Solomon and there's this kingdom where God gives them rest from their enemies and they're ruling and yet things go back to the way they were. And think of this, over 2,000 years they waited for this promise to be fulfilled when it was given and the question obviously is going to arise, is this actually going to happen? Is God actually going to send someone who's going to be the savior? And the prophets Have a resounding, yes, he is coming. Yes, he is going to come. The king is coming, and the world is going to be the realm of this king. And so you read promises like in Isaiah 9, where he's going to rule with justice. He's going to be the prince of peace, and there's going to be no end to his goodness and righteous rule. And he's going to set the world right by making a new world. But again, they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And I thought of waiting just like every child is waiting for Christmas every year. In fact, the Christmas list for this year probably started on Christmas the last year as they saw other things that their brothers and sisters and friends perhaps got. And they started informing you of the things that they wanted next Christmas on Christmas. But all of us have to wait. And God says in his word, in the fullness of time, at the right moment, at the perfect moment, when everything was already prepared, God gave us his son. And I think of the song, O Holy Night, where it says, long, long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appears. And the soul felt its worth. Think of the stories, Mary and Elizabeth, both of them pregnant, two Children who will do marvelous things for the kingdom of God. Mary and Joseph individually being visited by angels and, and then traveling to Bethlehem and the shepherds in the field and the angels visiting them and then going to see Jesus. And then three or more wise men go to see baby Jesus as well. And again, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to crush the head of the servant? Is this the one who's going to bring the restoration and the saving of the world? And the answer is yes the hope of mankind has come he's here the king of hope has come and so you have this thrill of hope the weary world is finally rejoicing for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn and I think how most of us celebrate Christmas with these stories of Christmas and the nativity scene but yet you and I both know that Christmas has become even more than that and some of it bad some of it wonderful it's a it's a time where many of us some of us perhaps can take a break we have a christmas break we get together with family we open presents and we eat practically everything that you possibly can and for some of you though the joy of christmas is only a week maybe for some of you it's a month maybe for some of you you're that weird person who sets up christmas lights after halloween you know who you are that's weird Either way, the joy of Christmas is fleeting. It's like we prepare for this this moment that it's gone. I remember being a kid. It was like, hey, we have Christmas break. Back to school. Hey, it's Christmas. Now it's back to work. Back to life. On with what should be done. Why is that, though? Is that all it is? Is that all what Christmas is for? For some of you, I would imagine that it's not even a real joyous time. I think for some of you, it's a a stressful time. You don't look forward to it. You look forward to it kind of to be over. It's an inconvenience to you having all family over. It's stressful. You're the one cooking. You're the one cleaning. You're the one being the host. And that's hard for you. It's stressful for you. For others of you, Your family has noted that your middle name should legally be changed to Scrooge. I think of Corey, Corey Scrooge Kent. Now, many of you are laughing because Corey is like the least Scrooge-like person, so he's not going to be offended by that at all. But just imagine, oh yeah, there's our family Scrooge. But I think for other reasons, maybe some of you don't look forward to Christmas because when you think of Christmas, you remember perhaps a loved one That is no longer with you for Christmas maybe someone lost someone during the holiday and every single time you come to Christmas you're reminded of what is no longer there you start realizing that things change and you wonder again how can I have hope how can Jesus becoming a human mean anything now to us, let alone for every day of our life. And that's what we're gonna see over the next two weeks. This week in particular, we're gonna look at the Christmas story is Christ's humility. And what he did in his humility gives us hope every day. Our passage is found in Hebrews chapter two. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter two. We'll be looking at verses five through nine. We're gonna start in a section that kind of assumes an understanding that you have. But the message of the book of Hebrews is pretty clear. And it's simply this. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better than everything else. Jesus is better than everything else. You need nothing else but a clearer view of Jesus. Because if you have Jesus, you practically have Everything that is good, everything that you did have is actually better now because you have Jesus, is what he says. And our passage today shows us that Jesus is the one who restores the hope for humanity, that God's original design for humanity was not forgotten. I think of the phrase that we just sang, promise keeper. Now, God's promises might not be kept in the timing that we like, but God never fails to keep his promise. He will always keep his promise. And Jesus is the one who brings the promise of God forward, but he does it through humility. And so let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And the first thing I want us to see is that the hope of God is seen in God's promise. Our hope needs to be seen in God's promise. And we see this in the first part. And he says, "Notice now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, what is this world to come that he's talking about? If you remember, I mentioned that the prophets said that a king would come and bring restoration to humanity, but also to the world. And so you see in the promises of God that there is this world, the Messiah will come and will bring about his rule on the earth. That's promised throughout all of the Bible. And so the question is, okay, Who is the one who is going to receive this? In Hebrews chapter 1, the author is showing you that what the son is is far better than the angels in terms of superiority. He was given a name that is better than the angels. In the Old Testament, the angels were the ones who ministered the old covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he talks about that later in the book. But what he says is, is now he says that God has spoken to us in, in his son. And the son is different than the angels. The son is the heir of all things. He's the one who created the world. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of God's glory. He is totally different than the angels. He's better than the angels. And then he talks about how he made propitiation for our sins. He's assuming something in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's going to talk about through the rest of Hebrews. But he says in Hebrews 1, he goes, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet, signifying that there is one who will come who will actually rule over the world. And so the author of Hebrews says, who's this one who comes and who did God promise the world to come to? And he goes back and he quotes a passage from Psalm 8 that actually goes back and is talking about Genesis chapter 1. And he shows in his quotation of Psalm 8 that although the promise to mankind was thwarted because of sin's action of cursing the world and man's rebellion against God, that through the Son, the promise will come forward. So he says this, and I love this in verse 6. This probably sounds like many of us. It has been testified somewhere. I love that. He actually means... Someone said somewhere. He doesn't really know where the reference is. It doesn't matter. It's God's word, and that's his point. I don't care where it is. This is what God's word said. It's somewhere. I love that. That was my grandparents. They said, I forgot references. It's somewhere. But that's what he says. And notice the quotation. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That was the original design. This is the idea of going back to Genesis chapter one where God said, we will make man in our image, in our likeness, male and female. He created them as image bearers. And God says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over everything on the earth. But man was created lower than the angels. We were created out of the dust of the earth. Yet, it says, we were crowned with glory and honor, made in his image unique, and given rule over the earth. And the response is, wonder of wonders, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you do this for us? Adam and Eve, the first king and queen of God's physical world, they should have responded, why would you do this for us? What are we that you would give us this rule? What what, what are we that you would even give us this privilege? This is amazing, thank you. And Psalm 8 is King David. Think of King David's story. He was a lowly shepherd, anointed to be the king over Israel. Lord, why would you do this? This is amazing, thank you. But that didn't last very long, did it? I think of Adam and Eve looking over a garden and focusing on what was not to be theirs and taking it. Same thing of David, looking out over a kingdom, beautiful kingdom, and focusing on what was not to be his and taking it. Because now what we see in humanity is that we have prideful independence and discontentment, where we should have had humble dependence and gratitude. That's the expectation of a ruler is humility. And all throughout the Bible, and even today, rulers are not very humble. We're very prideful. We're independent. And we're discontent in what we have. I think of every day you and I want to be king and queen of our own realm. Isn't it amazing you don't have to teach kids that either? If a kid is there, they think that everything revolves around them. And when someone else has something that they don't have, they want it. And I think of how Christmas often brings this out in me. I look out at all the things I don't have, all the things that I want and all the things that I can't get. And it breeds discontentment in me, thinking that I should have more, that I should have better. Or maybe I just simply become selfish. I'm the one who wants to be left alone. I don't want anybody to bother me. Just serve me during Christmas. This is my break. And I think of how that desire to rule is actually inherent in us. But it's changed because of sin and in the reality of Adam's failure a new Adam needs to come and fix what he lost and so the promise again is given to the seed of a woman a son of man as the text says the son of man that you care for him so it's not just any human the term son of man is just general it just means a human being It's parallel to what is man or the son of man, just humans that you care for him. But notice in this text, there's a hint that it's not just any human. It needs to be a good human, an obedient human, a perfect human, a humble human. One might even say a God human. Because Psalm 8 is not just looking back. It's looking forward to the son of man that would come. Look at this passage from Daniel 7. This is a promise of a son of man. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be Destroyed? but that sounds a lot like what we want. There's a man who will ascend to God and receive a glorious kingship and kingdom and will rule forever over all people. And the whole world will be his. And so reflecting on this promise of this son of man, the writer of Hebrews says his next part. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him this son of man it says he left nothing outside his control i love that so there's an anticipation building psalm 8 is quoted as there's a son of man who will come daniel 7 also takes that same promise and says i know exactly who that is and then this writer of hebrews says listen that one has full control over everything, because God says he will put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, let's be honest, as we see that word that he left nothing outside of his control, would you have summarized 2020 as God is truly in control? Maybe 2020 has been a time where you look and you go, I don't even know what is happening. God, it doesn't seem like there's control anywhere of what is happening. And that is why I love the next part of verse eight. Look at it. It says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Everything is not ruled yet in finality. It's not done yet yet. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, something started when Christ came. The Christmas story has a trajectory of beginning, but it's not yet finished. It is true that the king has come. It is true that he has accomplished rule, but we do not yet fully see everything in his rule. And I love that it says the word not yet. I think of that as a parent. When I say not yet to my kids, I look at it as it's a joyful anticipation that it will happen. My kids see it as, are you kidding me? I have to wait longer. Which one are you in terms of the promises of God? Are you the type of person who looks at a not yet and says, it's coming. It's coming, yes, it's coming. And it's sure to come. It's, It's just not yet. It's just not yet. Or are you the type of person who says, why is this still continuing? Why isn't it yet? What do you mean not yet? How much longer is this going to be? Are you really going to bring it about? The longer I have to wait, the less hope and joy I have in waiting. Why are you still having us wait? I don't even see you doing anything during this time. And honestly, all of us live both views of not yet. And in God's grace, perhaps some of you have been living in that anticipation of not yet. And for those of you living in the not yet where you're frustrated, let me remind you that the hope of the promise is still sure. But we often have to admit that we have questions like how can I keep Hoping, how do I know it's sure? At present, Lord, I don't, I don't see anything happening. All I see around me is chaos and I see rebellion and I see disorder and I see pain and frustration and agony. Lord, will you please help me see the truth that you are still in control? And this is where the writer takes the truth of Christmas and brings it home to us. Because when you and I are wondering, where are you and I to hope in times of chaos, disorder, agony, and frustration? What am I supposed to be seeing? What am I supposed to be looking when I'm seeing all of this? And notice what the author says next. He says, we do not yet see everything in his control yet in subjection to him. But verse 9, but we see him. The author tells us exactly where to look because hope is seen in the life of Jesus. But we see him. There are no no sweeter words in the Bible for us to look to hope than, but we see him. Now the question is, what am I supposed to see about Jesus? If I see him, what am I seeing? Because I know this man, I know the stories of Jesus, I know the gospels, what am I to see And that's what the author says. He says, you are to see the story of Christmas. You say, well, where is that? Notice it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That's Christmas. That's Christmas right there. The first thing of Christ's life that gives us hope is that Jesus is the reigning king. So Psalm 8 and Daniel 7 are brought forward in Christmas. And I think of this, what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Look at what she says about Mary. She says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him his, give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's exactly what we're anticipating. That's exactly what we want. We want this one who's going to come and rule as a son of man and transform the world, restore back to humanity their worth and what they lost in the Garden of Eden in their rebellion and that he would then remove the curse of the earth and usher in the glorious messianic age. And that's exactly what Gabriel says to Mary. That's exactly what she is announced about this baby. Isn't that amazing? And so we sing rightly songs like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. It's what we want to sing. And we sing songs like, Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Or even another one that says, Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the... A little less zeal than I was expecting, but that's okay. <laughs> come and worship the Christ, the newborn king. It's focusing on the reigning king. And the, so the songs of Christmas understand rightly that this little baby is the promised king who will come. And it is rightly understood. And I love celebrating Jesus as the king. I hope you do as well. I hope that we understand. Yes, we serve the king. We're going to stand and rule with Jesus Christ by his grace for those who trust and love him. Let me ask you a question. Was that all that was promised of Jesus when he came? Isn't it interesting that Mary receives that statement about Jesus? But look at what Joseph receives Matthew 1 20 and 21 it says Joseph son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus sounds very similar notice though he will save his people from their sins why was he called Jesus because he will save people from their sins isn't it interesting that Luke and Matthew are the only two Gospels really that have a birth account. John has the word became flesh. John's Gospel also introduces Jesus with these words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Why is Jesus crowned with glory and honor? The text says, he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so the second thing we must see about this king it's not that he's just the reigning king, but that he was the suffering king. If you look at other Christmas songs, they include the reality of him dying. Many of us maybe don't like thinking of the crucifixion when we think of Christmas, but the writers of hymns and other realities recognize that Christmas really isn't much without him accomplishing something. Then he's just a baby who's born, who's a God baby, but he's, he can't be called the Savior of the world. And so you have a hymn, like who is he in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall. And we like that because then it says, it's the Lord. Oh, oh wondrous story, it's the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall, so crown him, crown him, Lord of all. But then another verse in that same hymn says, who is he on yonder tree? dies in grief and agony. And the same refrain, it's the Lord, a wondrous story. "'Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall, so crown him, crown him, Lord of all." The last verse of the first Noel says, "'And with his blood mankind hath bought.'" Noel, Noel. I think of even the song, "'We Three Kings of Orient Are.'" The fourth verse says, Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Because they knew that was the end result of what Christ would do. This, this king who's born, would suffer for his people. And we have to remember that the story of Christmas doesn't go from Christmas to the crown. We want it to, and in our own life, we want it to go from joy and hope to immediate expectation and fulfillment. But what does it say? It says it goes from Christmas to the cross, then to the crown. And that gives us hope because you and I are told that we will walk the same road as Jesus. Christ's humility is our hope because you and I now face times of humility and hardship and agony in our life. And that fuels hope because who do we see? We see him we see him who was made lower than the angels, humbled himself, and he is now crowned with glory and honor because of what he suffered. He suffered death. And the Bible is filled with promises that you and I are to live that same life. I think of Paul in Acts 14. When he goes to various places and he's talking to the churches, he goes back and says it's, they strengthen the souls of the disciples. They're encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this is what they're saying as encouragement. That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul writes elsewhere to the Thessalonians. He says, I pray that no one will be moved by these afflictions that you're facing. Because you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And we went through Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, it says, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ That you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's been grace to you. Not only belief, but suffering. Because that's the same exact thing that our Lord faced before the crown. And so Paul writes, if we endure, we will reign with him. It doesn't come apart from that. And that is why we look to Jesus. He experienced our suffering. He experienced the delay and the time of waiting himself. He had to wait. Now next week, we're gonna deal more with how Christmas and the life and death of Christ helps us in our present struggles as believers and gives us peace. But this passage shows us that our joyful anticipation of hope is because of the life that Jesus lived for us in humility. And so the final thing we see is that Jesus was the sacrificial king. He wasn't just the reigning king or isn't just the reigning king. He wasn't just the suffering, but he did it purposely as the sacrificial king. Notice it says he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is telling us why Christmas even had to happen. He had to taste death For everyone. Apart from this, again, Christmas has no hope. There's no message of Christmas if Jesus is just a baby born in a manger. Nothing. Isn't it amazing if you listen to on the radio some of these people singing the hymns, if you hear unbelievers singing hymns, they don't necessarily focus on all of the verses of the hymns. They focus maybe on the first one that is socially okay for people to sing about Jesus and then they miss the realities of some of the other things that they need to sing about Jesus. We sing all of them because we know all of them are true and our hearts need to wrestle over the reality of all of the truth that is said about Jesus. But notice that it says it's by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We needed someone to stand in our place. We are the ones who fell into rebellion. We're the ones who fell into sin. Our hearts are the ones that are marred and not desiring any good thing that God would give us. That's why the Bible says that the grace of God needed to be given to us. It's God initiating sending Jesus. When it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What is said about you and I during this time? Well, Romans 5 says we were helpless, we were sinners, and we were enemies of God. That's not stuff that you would put on your resume for reasons why someone would hire you ever, let alone that there's a reason for you to gain salvation. But that's the exact reason why Christ died for us, to show that it can't be our initiative. It's not from us that salvation comes. It is from the grace of God that Christ died for us that's how he manifested his love for us while we were these things Christ died for us that's incredible that's his sacrificial love that's his humility he tasted death for everyone notice this where did death come from anyway it's a consequence of the the garden Man rebelled, and God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the introduction of death came. If you read Genesis 5, it says, and he died, 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 and over and over again. Now people are dying. You might live long, but you're gonna die. And as I said, as we think of this, many of you have faced people dying. Perhaps this year, you faced family and friends dying. And again, some of you maybe face holidays thinking of that. And I think how Christmas is no exception. Yet we don't see, as it said, everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. And Jesus did not deserve to die. That was ours to have. And when it says he tasted death for everyone, that means, listen, this is the greatest hope. He tasted death for everyone. That means anyone can have faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. There is not one person who calls on the name of the Lord and will not be saved. It says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I will never cast them away. That's Jesus. He opens his arms and says, this is what I've done for you so that anyone who has faith in me will be saved. Let me ask you this, do you know that truth? Do you know the Lord Jesus that way? Or do you simply know him as this little baby in a manger on a Christmas celebration or a nativity scene or some Christmas carols? Do you know Jesus in the way that he's not only this little baby but that he is your risen, reigning Lord? who died for you and was raised to life to show you that he has won a victory, that the purchase for your sin has been fully paid, as Jaden mentioned, all of the things that he sees now is not just escape to heaven, it's that he is gloriously wonderful. Do you know him that way? Do you see Jesus? Do you behold him? Come and behold him. It's what we want. And the way to receive him is the same way that Psalm 8 reminds us. It is in humble dependence and gratitude. Lord, I need you. I need you. Thank you for what you have done for me. This is who I am. This is who you are. I am the sinner. You are the savior. I need your grace. You have given it. I receive it by grace. That is my desire for all of you who do not know. And for those of you who do know that, that your heart would well up in hope, knowing that he who promised is faithful. He will come back. He will bring us to himself. And again, next week, we'll look at this more. So let me end with this thought. Where are you looking? What are you seeing Perhaps you've been looking at everything around you and you've been seeing the world falling apart, the world going into chaos, disorder, confusion. Everything inside of you is losing hope again. But again, we have to turn and look to Jesus. And he is the one who is crowned because he suffered first. And I love the little words there, a little while made lower than the angel's. That's a hard word because a little while for us seems like a very long time. And yet Paul's words are very encouraging to us where he says these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Because he remembers the life of Jesus and says, even he for a little while was made lower than the angels. But now he's crowned. And you and I for a little while now might suffer Hardship, difficulty, persecution, agony, pain, tears, mourning, you name it. But then we will receive a glory that far outweighs them all. And that is hope. That is what all of us have. And it's not easy to see Christmas as a constant means of hope, especially since we're not done yet in what I have called the American funhouse that we're living right now. But let's be honest, you are not the first person to wrestle with the realities of what's going to happen in the future as you look at the present. And I am reminded of the early church. Carl Henry has this awesome quote. He says the early church didn't say, "Look what the world is coming to." They said, "Look what has come into the world." They didn't say, "Look what the world is coming to." They said, "Look what has come into the world. And what has come into the world, church? The greatest hope the world could receive. And he is not done yet. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the hope that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that there are people just like myself, Lord, that I need to be reminded of your hope. I need to be reminded that you are the one in full control, even though right now, yet, we do not see everything in subjection to you. We still have the reality of facing pain, mourning, and death. But Lord, as your word reminds us, as Paul reminds us that there is nothing that will separate us from your love, that in all of these things, as we continue looking to you and understanding that you gave us your son, Jesus, and so you'll graciously with him, give us everything we need, that we are more than conquerors. Lord, I pray for those who do not know this truth, do not know this reality, do not have this hope. Lord, I pray that you would convict, that you would bring the reality of what they actually are hoping in, because all of us hope in something. Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes to see you that we would see you in your humility and obedience to the Father suffered a death for us. You were buried and yet you were raised and ascended and now you are truly crowned with glory and honor. And so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the Father's glory. Lord, I pray that we would do that now. If we know you, Lord, I pray that we would sing your praises, that we would look to you, that we would see you, that we would read of you and that we would enjoy you for you are worthy of these things, Lord Jesus Amen